What is up, everyone? I'm your host, Sherry, and I'm back with another true crime case here on the dark side. I've had a few people ask recently which true crime podcasts are my favorite. I'm super picky. I don't like banner or giggling or sidebar conversations, so I thought I'd give you some suggestions so you can check them out and also let me know who your favorites are. I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that. These are just my top three. Number three is Going West. Heath and Daphne are good people and their storytelling is fantastic. They publish twice a week, which is hard to do. I've learned just once a week is hard. Plus, I love listening to Daphne's voice. Number two is Trace Evidence. The host, Stephen Pacheco, goes into so much detail. And I've been listening to him for about three or four years now. Lately, he's reeled back a lot on his coverage of cases, and I hope everything is okay with him. There's a huge back catalog of true crime cases he's published through the years, and he is still actively publishing them, just not as much lately. And lastly, my number one favorite podcast is definitely True Crime Garage. Nick and the Captain are great to listen to. There is some humor, but not enough to distract from the story or the victims. This one does have sidebar conversations, but they have to do with the subject at hand. I feel like those two guys spend every waking minute researching and writing about cases. They also have a beer fund on their website, which they definitely deserve. I just listened to one today where they had a guest on the show, which is rare. It was a woman who lived in the woods just one quarter mile from Ted Kaczynski. He used to come over and eat dinner with her family, and she talked about the 15 years of living beside him not knowing he was the Unabomber. It was a really creepy one. Anyway, those are my top three true crime podcasts, besides my own. All can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Today's case is a disappearance from decades ago that is still a mystery today. A 31-year-old mom disappears from her home one late October day, and there's some speculation about her disappearance that keeps people interested in her case even so many years later. 600,000 people go missing every year. Why is Joan's case one of the most analyzed on the internet? Let's dive in. This is episode 74, The Disappearance of Joan Risch. We're going back a ways with this one, all the way back to 1961. President John F. Kennedy advised Americans to build fallout shelters in the event of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Can you imagine if the president said that today? Some products we use today got their start in 1961. Coffee Mate, CoverGirl Makeup, Pam Cooking Spray, and a brand new beverage called Sprite. Ground beef was three pounds for a dollar. A jar of peanut butter was 35 cents. New York City recorded 17 inches of snow in one day. Willie Mays hit four home runs in one game. The Jaguar was the most popular car, 
And lastly, TWA showed its first in-flight movie. About the pronunciation of Joan's name, I had to look up how to pronounce it. It seemed like Rish was the most common pronunciation, but some people pronounce it Rish. If I'm wrong, I'm sure I'm going to hear about it, but we're going with Rish. Joan was born on May 12, 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. Her family moved to New Jersey when she was just nine years old, and her parents died in a fire shortly afterwards. Joan went to live with a foster family for a short while. She then went to live with relatives who formally adopted her. Joan's favorite thing as a child was reading books and writing. It's no wonder that she would eventually major in English. Joan finishes high school and heads off to Wilson College. She worked as a waitress during this time and was also a member of the field hockey team. She was a part of the student government and had a very active social life. In a book about this case written by Stephen Ahern, a friend of Joan's says about her, Joan was regular, the most normal person I know. She was quiet, kind, and sincere. I do not remember her ever criticizing anybody. She joined in with the crowd and did whatever we did, and she worked very hard as a waitress. Joan graduated with honors. She earned her bachelor's degree in English literature and goes to work at a publishing company. She starts out as a secretary, but she worked her way up to editorial assistant. In 1954, Joan meets a man named Martin Risch at a Harvard football game. It was a blind date set up by one of Joan's college roommates. They begin dating, and then they got married and moved to Connecticut and then to Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is where this story takes place. Lincoln, Massachusetts has a population of 7,000 people in 2020. It is known for being filled with colonial history. Martin and Joan had two children named Lillian and David. At this time, at the time the story takes place in 1961, Lillian is four and David is two. At this point, her husband, Martin, is an executive at the Fitchburg Paper Company, making a great salary, so Joan is able to stop working and become a stay-at-home mom. Martin and Joan seem to have a good, stable marriage and no real issues. Joan filled her days taking care of her two small children and gardening and making dinners and keeping her house clean and tidy. She liked to visit the local library and she was also a member of the local League of Women's Voters. According to their website, the League of Women's Voters was founded in 1920, and its major activities include registering voters, providing voter information, and advocating for voting rights. Joan is described as thoughtful and kind. She told friends that when her two kids got a little older and were in school all day, she planned to return to work, but this time she wanted to work as a school teacher. So the morning of Tuesday, October 24th, 1961, it started out like any other day. They had only been in their new house in Lincoln, Massachusetts for about six months. Martin kisses Joan goodbye early in the morning and heads to Logan Airport to catch a flight to New York City. Massachusetts to New York City seems like the shortest flight ever, but okay. He's a busy executive. He had business in New York that would be wrapped up in a day or two, and then he'll come home. The most normal of days is about to turn into a decades-long mystery. 
By 4.15 p.m. that day, four-year-old Lillian would run to her neighbor's house claiming, Mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. So Joan has vanished and the kitchen is a bloody mess. It seems at first glance that someone has murdered Joan and taken her body somewhere else. But there are th- things in the story that are come that are going to come out that may paint a completely different story. And perhaps Joan is still alive somewhere. Even some speculation that Joan staged her own disappearance. Let's backtrack to earlier that day. After Martin left that morning to catch his flight, Joan wakes the children up. Four-year-old Lillian and two-year-old David ate breakfast. The dishes were cleaned and put away. The beds were made as well. At 9.20 a.m., Joan receives a phone call from her friend, Sabra. But Joan keeps the phone call short because she has a dentist appointment that she has to get to. So Joan and Martin are new residents to this neighborhood, and Joan had made friends with a neighbor across the street. The woman's name was Barbara Baker. Barbara had a son that was the same age as Joan's daughter Lillian, so the two kids often played together. Barbara and Joan took turns watching each other's kids and would often send the kids across the street to the other house to hang out. This is 1961, and neighbors were a little more trusting of each other. That morning, Joan is going to take her younger child, David, over to Barbara's house while her and Lillian go to the dentist. Joan and Lillian get in the car and make it to the dentist's office just in time for their appointment. The dentist said Lillian was very well behaved while her mom got a cavity filled. The dentist also said that Joan was in good spirits and chatting with the dental assistant, and then she scheduled a follow-up appointment for the following week. Joan and Lillian left the office around 10.15 a.m., and headed to a clothing store, and Joan bought clothes for herself and her son, David. She also stopped at a grocery store to pick up some additional items for dinner. She had done a big grocery shop the day before, and this sounds just like me. I'll do a big grocery store trip, and then the next day I have to go back for everything I forgot. While the mom and daughter are out shopping, the mailman is making his usual rounds through the neighborhood, and he doesn't he didn't see anything unusual. Joan's car wasn't there, but it's not supposed to be there. They're out shopping. The garbage man comes through as well, and he doesn't see anything out of the ordinary. The milkman had dropped off their normal order of milk, so this is the third person to come by the by the house while she was out. The milkman said, just like the other two, that this house seemed empty and normal. This was a substitute milkman, as the regular one was on vacation. The regular one would state later that the week before he went on vacation, he came by their house and there was a car he didn't recognize in the driveway. He described it as a General Motors two-tone car. This could be innocent, though. Perhaps it's just a friend visiting. So... Joan returns home around 11 o'clock a.m. and walks across the street to pick up David from Barbara's house. She spoke to Barbara for a few minutes and said how wonderful of a job the dentist did filling her cavity. Barbara says Joan was in great spirits and collected David and went back across the street to her home. So Joan puts away her milk and her purchases and hangs up her trench coat. She changes from her formal outing clothes into house clothes. 
At 11.15 a.m., another contracted employee stops by, Mr. Walton Colburn. He works for a laundry service and is there to pick up at their weekly dry cleaning. So Joan gives him Martin suits and a few of her skirts. He was there for just a minute or two and said Joan seemed fine and pleasant just like every other time he's been to the house. So Joan puts David down for his nap. David usually sleeps from 12 o'clock p.m. until 2 p.m., according to Martin. Around an hour later, Barbara lets her son walk across the street to play with Lillian in the driveway. We don't know exactly what Joan was doing during this time, but there was a book found open on her kitchen table. We think she was reading at the table where she could keep an eye on Lillian and the neighbor boy, you know, through the window. Fresh-cut clippings were found inside the outdoor garbage can, so Joan likely went outside and did some gardening during this time as well. Remember, the garbage man had emptied her trash just a couple hours before. So this is where things are going to start to get strange. Around 2 p.m., David is still sleeping in his crib. Joan walks Lillian and Barbara's son back to Barbara's house. She doesn't say anything to Barbara. She just leaves them outside and tells Lillian, I'll be back in a little bit. So the children played in Barbara's front yard. I know this sounds crazy in 2023, but back then you could literally leave your four-year-olds out front and it would be totally fine. Fifteen minutes later, Barbara looks out her window and spots Joan wearing her trench coat she had on earlier that morning. She is walking fast up her driveway. Barbara says, I saw her run beside her car. She looked like she was holding something red or she was chasing a child wearing a red coat. She assumes that this is just Joan and David playing outside. So Joan's arms were outstretched in front of her and she was either holding something red or chasing a small child in a red coat. At 3.45 p.m., Barbara takes four-year-old Lillian back to her house. She doesn't see Joan. She just takes Lillian to the yard and tells her to go on inside and Lillian walks into her house. So Barbara takes her son shopping and returns about a half hour to 45 minutes later. Once Barbara is home, Lillian comes running across the street. Barbara asks her what is wrong, and she says, Mommy's gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. Barbara knows something is very wrong and goes inside Joan's house. The red paint that Lillian talked about was not red paint, but blood. She goes to David's room, and he is awake from his nap and standing in his crib. He is crying because his diaper was very full. Barbara gets another neighbor, Mary Butler, to come help her search the house for Joan, and then Barbara calls the police. So let's talk about the scene that the police are going to walk into. So the kitchen walls and floor have blood smears on them. There were paper towels like someone tried to clean up the blood but gave up partway through it. They found blood drops upstairs leading to David's crib and then back to the kitchen again. It almost seemed like the person had been disoriented and moving from room room to room. The kitchen trash can, which was usually kept inside a cabinet, was in the middle of the floor. The telephone that hung on the wall was in the trash can. They found an empty liquor bottle and a couple beer bottles. Martin explained that the liquor bottle was from the previous night when he and his wife had had a few drinks. He couldn't explain the beer bottles, though. I feel like those beer bottles, though, have been overanalyzed so much in this case. 
I don't know, maybe she had a, a beer. I don't, I'm not sure. There was an overturned table and several items that were on the table were on the floor. A phone book was found and it was open to the page that listed emergency numbers. So back then you had to call the police department or the hospital if you had an emergency. 911 wasn't available until 1968. Nothing was stolen out of the house. Even Joan's purse was found untouched, so we can rule out a robbery. One person who can explain why the house was in disarray was Joan, but Joan is nowhere to be found. It doesn't take long for word to spread. Martin is contacted and canceled the rest of his trip and comes right home. Martin was brought into the police station to be interviewed and give his statement. He was quickly ruled out. He was on business in New York and had a lot of solid alibis for the day. He couldn't have done something to her that morning before he left because she was seen by Barbara multiple times, even having face-to-face -face conversations with her that day. Joan talked to her friend on the phone that morning, plus she went to the dentist and got a filling and was very much alive in the dentist chair. So some sightings of Joan or someone who appeared similar to Joan around the time of her disappearance would eventually come to light. At 2.25 p.m., this is not long after Barbara spotted Joan in the driveway moving quickly and possibly carrying something red, a resident in the area said they saw Joan walking on Route 2 with her head down. This is only about 300 yards from her home. Now keep in mind, this person says it was Joan, but it could have been somebody who looked like her. Um, apparently, she had like a scarf around her head and a trench coat on. At 3 o'clock p.m., a girl getting off the bus in the area told her mom that she saw an unfamiliar car in Joan's driveway. A few minutes later, another resident was driving down the street and had to stop to let a car back out of Joan's driveway. Joan drives a blue 1951 Chevrolet, and this wasn't it. However, police would later say that given the description that this girl gave of the car, this was actually the first police car in the driveway. At 3.15 to 3.30 p.m., someone reported a woman resembling Joan walking in the median strip of Route 128. She appeared hunched over and disoriented. This is approximately five miles from Joan's house. At 4.25 p.m., this is around the time Barbara goes over and sees that Joan is not there. A couple people reported seeing someone matching Joan's description walking on that same highway approximately four miles from Joan's house near an exit. She would have had to cross lanes of traffic to get to this spot. Many of these witnesses that spotted this woman said she appeared disheveled and unkept, one even claiming that she had blood running down her legs. This seems strange since Joan was wearing a dress but had a long trench coat on over top of the dress so there's not much leg showing. I wonder if these sightings were really Joan or if it was mistaken identity. I've talked before, especially in the Logan Schindelman case, about witnesses who spot someone believing it's the missing person, but they don't know the person is missing until days later, and then sometimes you can make yourself believe that the person you saw three days ago walking down the street was indeed the missing person. The day after Joan's disappearance, the FBI is notified, but eventually they withdrew, since there wasn't a lot to prove that she had been murdered. Six days after her disappearance, the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, offered a $500 reward for any information about her disappearance. Today, in 2023, that would be $5,000. 
The woods near her house was searched thoroughly, as well as nearby bodies of water. Hospitals and jails were checked, and no one resembling Joan was there. It has been 62 years since Joan disappeared. The last official confirmed sighting was when Barbara said she saw her walking quickly in the driveway, possibly carrying something red into the garage. The blood found in the kitchen and leading outside and also to David's crib was confirmed to be typo blood. This was well before DNA testing. Joan did have typo blood, but typo is the most common blood type. Given the circumstances, though, it is likely Joan's blood and not someone else's. Now, even though there's blood everywhere, the medical team says that they truly only believe that this was around a half a pint of blood. The crime scene was almost superficial. This means it's not enough to blood to lose to have a death occur, but rather an injury and someone tried to clean it up. Remember, there were paper towels with blood on them around the kitchen, as well as a pair of baby David's overalls that looked like they were used to clean up. It's a concerning amount of blood for sure, but this isn't enough to be able to safely say someone was murdered here without a doubt. It's more like someone was injured here. They did find a bloody hand and palm print on Joan's car, as well as a drop of blood on the outside of the trunk. But since Joan's prints weren't on file, they couldn't determine if these were actually hers. Over 5,000 fingerprints were examined, and none of them matched, so it was likely Joan's. In my opinion, I think this bloody handprint occurred when Barbara looked outside and said Joan was next to the car, possibly carrying something red. Let's go over some of the theories of what could have possibly happened to Joan. Theory number one is the intruder theory. Did Joan come home to an intruder in her house? So nothing was stolen from the house. Joan's purse was untouched. If there was an intruder, they didn't take anything except Joan. They also didn't leave any fingerprints or footprints in the house. As well, nobody heard any screams. This neighborhood was filled with housewives who were home while their husbands were at work. Many were outside with their children. Her new friend Barbara was right across the street. Another theory is that Joan possibly staged her disappearance. She dropped her daughter off across the street, then it made it look like there was this crime that had taken place in her house, and then she slipped away. Then she was spotted walking down the road, escaping to her new life. I don't see her leaving baby David in his crib alone and leaving the house. Joan was a good mom. She devoted her life to those kids. I also don't see her leaving this gruesome, traumatizing scene for her four-year-old daughter to walk into. One piece that supports this theory is the fact that, remember me telling you how much Joan loved books and visiting the library? Well, Joan had been checking out a lot of books about murders and disappearances including one book titled Into Thin Air. The book was about a woman who staged her own disappearance and left blood and towels behind to confuse the police. Joan had been fascinated with these books about crime. Perhaps she could have been inspired by these books and staged her own disappearance. Or she's just like you and I. She loves true crime. It's 1961 and there aren't any podcasts or unsolved mystery TV shows, so she gets her fix from the library. If I was a housewife in 1961, you can be damn sure I'd be checking out library books about true crime. 
Joan seemed happy and content with her life. She never spoke about wanting a different life. Plus, I don't see her abandoning her children for good. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't see her leaving this gruesome crime scene for her children to be traumatized forever. Also, Joan was busy that day. She was running errands and had the milkman and the dry cleaner stop by. If she's going to disappear, she likely would have had picked a day when she had more of an opportunity. I'm sure Lillian, even at four years old, remembers walking into the kitchen that day and seeing blood everywhere. She was home with her little brother for 20 minutes in this crime scene until she saw Barbara return back across the street and she runs over to get help. I thought about the time that Lillian was in the house alone, and I wonder if maybe it was her using the paper towels to clean up the mess, and that's a really sad thought, but it would explain why the scene appeared to be partially cleaned and blood-soaked paper towels were laying around the kitchen. The next theory is that Joan had a man in her house, perhaps a lover while her husband was away, and he turned out to be a bad person. People tie the empty beer bottles found in the trash can to this theory. She dropped the four-year-old off at the neighbor's house, put the two-year-old down for a nap, and wanted to spend some time with her lover. This would help explain the lack of screams. Joan could have not screamed because she didn't want to be caught in this compromising situation. Neighbors would have come running over, and she would have to explain why she had this man in her house. Whereas if it was a stranger, she probably would have taken off running down the street, screaming her head off. Joan having an affair would be a shitty thing regardless, but back then this type of risky behavior would get you outcasted from your town and your peers. Police asked Barbara about this, and she said Joan was, quote, level-headed and faithful. Joan would not have had any male company in her husband's absence. Other neighbors backed this up and said Joan would not have had any man in her house that was not her husband. Joan also kept to herself, and the only social life she had was the Women's League of Voters. Joan's foster mother said of Joan and her husband, Martin, I think they were extremely happy. They had a beautiful home, two lovely children, and they were congenial companions, as far as I know. Police found no evidence of an affair. I've been so bothered by the phone being ripped from the wall and placed into the trash can with the bloody paper towels everywhere. Is it possible Joan injured herself and was staggering around and tried to grab the phone and it came off the wall? She then managed to grab some paper towels and clean it up. I thought about this. I'm a mom. I'd be bleeding out too and trying to clean up the mess at the same time. I'd also throw the phone in the trash if it came off the wall and broke. I would also be in a state of panic and would walk upstairs to check on my two-year-old just to make sure all is okay with him. Remember, there was blood found near David's crib and then trailing back to the kitchen. Also, remember the phone book was found open at the page that lists all of the emergency numbers. The next theory is very popular, just as popular as Joan staging her own disappearance. Remember Barbara saying Joan was walking with her arms outstretched and possibly carrying something red? Remember a woman claimed she saw Joan walking down the highway with blood running down her legs? Is it possible that Joan had an in-home abortion? At the time in 1961, abortion was illegal except in extreme cases, which would have required medical certifications claiming having the child would be a threat to the mother's life. So abortions were often performed with coat hangers and kept a secret. An abortion would take between five and 10 minutes. It's possible a shady doctor could have come to her house and tried to perform the abortion and it just went awry. 
let's say things start to go wrong. Joan is bleeding out. She tries to call emergency services but needs to get the number first. She goes for the phone. The doctor rips the phone from the wall so she can't call from help and get him busted for performing this illegal procedure. Then he leaves, and Joan wanders off, ashamed of what she did. She doesn't want anyone to find out she had an abortion and have to face public humiliation. Her husband doesn't agree with this theory. He says his wife adored children and wouldn't get an abortion. Joan did speak of becoming a teacher and going back to work once Lillian and David were old enough to go to school. Having another baby would certainly delay this opportunity for a few more years. I can't rule out the abortion theory, but I feel like it's unlikely. There's always a chance she could have had a miscarriage, though. As far as we know, Joan was not pregnant. There was also not any blood in the bathroom. I'd imagine if a doctor was going to come to your house to perform an abortion, it would likely be in the bathroom and not on the kitchen floor. I'm so lost on these theories. I feel like the only possible one, in my opinion, that holds any kind of weight would be Joan injured herself somehow. She tries to call for help and ends up ripping the phone off the wall. She's staggering around the house, disoriented, and then outside. Instead of walking across the street to Barbara's house to get help, she just wanders down the street. But she had managed to put her coat on before she left. She is stumbling down the road and then the highway. There was some construction going on in the area, and it's possible she stumbled onto one of these job sites and fell into a pit and then got buried. According to most sources, this job site was never excavated. So Martin stayed at their house for many, many years. He never changed anything. He raised his kids and tried to make their lives as normal as possible. He also didn't change his house phone number just in case Joan were to call one day. He received a lot of prank calls, people pretending to be Joan, which is so shitty, and people who do this are terrible people. Martin died at the age of 79 in 2009. He lived most of his life without his wife and was forever shaken by her mysterious disappearance. He never once had her declared legally dead because he truly believes that she is alive and out there with amnesia and someday it would click that she is this woman who disappeared from Lincoln, Massachusetts. He never gave up searching for his wife. His obituary reads that he was survived by his son David and his daughter Lillian who were 52 and 50 years old in 2009. It also reads that Martin endured a difficult and good life. He tried to make uh, his life better for himself and his family. If Joan is alive today, she is 93 years old, a loving wife and mom who simply vanished into thin air. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.